Well, welcome to this week's episode of Chuck Chat. I think this is going to be a two-part episode because Dave and I were talking and there's no way to sum up your life in 20 <laughs> minutes. Uh, you have been, well, David is the king of timeshare, David Siegel. And, uh, it, you know, everybody in town knows who you are. So, but how did you get started? I was born. That's how I got started. <laughs> so, so you were lucky? All right, so I'll, 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 you want me to start from the beginning? Like your first, weren't you a sheriff at one point in time? I was deputy sheriff in, in uh, Dade County, Miami-Dade County. I was a TV repairman. Wait, 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 I think your kids told me you repaired all sorts of things. That all of a sudden you started repairing electronics and everybody brought their electronics okay. to you. Was that before being a sheriff? Yeah. So how'd that come about? That was actually before and during. Being a sheriff? Yeah. And how old were you back then? I was 20, 21. Did you go to college? I was 21. Uh, I went to three and a half years University of Miami. Uh, I think what we should do maybe start from the beginning. Start from the work beginning. Work our way up because it would be too complicated. Okay. I. I was born in Chicago. When I was two, my family moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. My father was a traveling salesman. Uh, and uh, at, when I was four years old, my brother was seven. He had a paper route. So I bugged my parents. Why, why can't I have a paper? I was four years old. <laughs> And I was persistent, so they got me a route on, on only on one side of the street because I, I was too young to cross the street. And I got 20 customers. This was in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I would deliver the papers, collect the money, pay for them. I, I delivered them in my, with, in my wagon. Well, you have a little red wagon you pulled behind you? I did. I did. My mother, a lot of times, would walk with me. And uh, the war broke out, World War II. And my father was drafted into the Navy. And my mother was a uh, cashier at the local supermarket. And I felt like I needed to help the family uh, make money. So I got into the pigeon business. So at seven years old, I raised pigeons, not the kind you see in parks, but the exotic ones like fantail pigeons that looked like miniature peacocks, king pigeons that were bigger than chickens, and especially homing pigeons, which the military bought from me to use to send messages back and forth. How did the military know you were raising pigeons? Uh, the word got out, uh, and uh, so at seven years old, when I wouldn't even let my children out of the, the door without someone with them, I was getting on my bike and going to neighboring towns, buying breeding stock, and I raised them in my garage, and um, I did I did very well. Um, seven years old, you were seven, in business. I was in. What made you? think that I'm going to raise and train I, I pigeons. Didn't know, I didn't know I could. 
<laughs> you didn't know you no couldn't. one ever told me I, I was too young or I can And uh, but what made you say I, I, I want to go get a pigeon and train it? Somebody told me that it might be a good business and so, and I could do it at home. And you knew where I lived because there was a flock of pigeons flying around over over my house. And I did that for three years. And when I was ten or nine or ten. My father got out of the Navy, and he had left all his personal belongings in the garage. And when he got home, they were all covered in pigeon dew. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, that was the end of my pigeon business. He made you quit the pigeon business? He made me get rid of it. And then when I was 10, we moved to— Wait, before that. So I'm, I'm just curious on the pigeons. So the military would buy them from you? or they have you? Buy, Yeah, they would buy them. And collectors. You know how we have peacocks—not peacocks, but— but uh, canaries and mm-hmm. cockatoos and all. In those days, people would raise exotic pigeons, like fantails. Did they use them to fly notes and things? No, no, those are homing pigeons. But I'm saying uh, people ra- bought pigeons like pets. But what did the military do with them? They, they used them to send messages. You know, there wasn't the internet back then. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, they 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 would, they would, a pigeon could could find its way home, take it a thousand miles away. They had an instinct and and put a message in their little capsule on their leg, and and they would fly back to their home thousand miles away with the message. Wow. Yeah, they that that was a big part of communications. During World War II. So that's very entrepreneur-like. And uh, Okay, so after the pigeons, so, Dad makes you get rid of them. I also, during that time, uh, my mother got me a job also at the grocery store uh, putting prices on the cans. So I always worked. And then we moved to Miami Beach when I was 10 years old. My father bought a grocery store. And back then... People would put, uh, would buy a, a, a soda in a bottle and put a two cent, de- you know, deposit on the bottle. And then when they they bring the bottles back, and you give them back their two cents. And I'd have to take all these bottles and and uh, divide them into different brands and get them ready for the beverage companies to come pick them up. So my first job was... was Funny you say that. I totally forgot about it, but when I was a little kid, yeah, I had a paper route. It's funny, John Morgan had a paper route, and a lot of successful people have had paper routes. But I just forgot. I used to have a little red wagon, too, when I was a kid. And I used to go collect bottles because at the time, you'd bring them to the store, and they had a five-cent refund on a glass bottle. Was it five? It was two cents when I was doing it. It's a little different in age. But, <laughs> but they had a five-cent refund on the bottles, and I used to gain, I'd yeah. go everywhere and collect oh, bottles, yeah. and I'd bring them back, and I'd get a couple dollars yeah, they didn't, from they didn't when I was a little, little. Aluminum cans like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I, that was my first job in the grocery store. It was a small grocery store, though. Uh, this, it was on South Beach. 237 Collins Avenue. Great address now. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. And uh, back in those days, the hotels along the ocean were all, they closed up uh, during the summer. They were only open in the winter. Uh, it was South Beach was old, all old people. 
We'll get there later, but you now have a hotel in South Beach. I do. I do. But we'll get there. But uh, so then my next job was in the produce department, and I would stack up the oranges like pyramids, and I'd polish the apples. And I mean, I really had it down, to, down pat. And then um, my mother and father would go back to Indianapolis. This is right after, this was in 1945, right after World War II ended. In fact, when I moved to Miami Beach, along the ocean were all these uh, military barracks were right along the ocean. And uh, we still had military. In fact, I don't know how familiar you are with Miami, but Baker's Hallover, which is North Miami Beach, mm -hmm. uh, just before you get to uh, uh, Sunny Isles. Sunny Isles. Yeah. Uh, they had a, a German prisoner war camp. No kidding. There, and after the war, you'd love this being a real estate man. After the war, uh, they tried to sell the property along the ocean for a hundred dollars an acre, yeah, and nobody bought it because. We had from 1945 to 1950, we had a hurricane every single year. And as a kid, we used to look forward to the hurricanes because at, right after the hurricane, we would go down to the beach and we'd find coins and all kinds of stuff in this, that blew up in the sand. Uh, we lived in a uh, apartment behind the grocery, a uh, one-room apartment, and my uh, father hung a, a blanket on a, a wire that divided it so he and my mother would have some privacy. And I, I had a brother at the time, one brother. And then we, and our back door faced the ocean. And when we had a hurricane, the sand would blow up and it would be higher than the door. So we'd have to climb out the window with a shovel and shuffle it away so we could open our back door. But those were exciting times. The streets were flooded. And how old were you back then? Ten. Ten years old. And you were running the grocery store. So he would, my mother and him would go up to Indianapolis to like, to buy bumblebee tuna. You couldn't, you know, there was rationing during the war. You had to buy little, to get gas, to get a lot of stuff. You couldn't get bubble gum. Hmm. Of course, as a kid, that was yeah. important. So, uh, he would go up and he'd come back from Indianapolis and and he would uh, bring me a, a box of a hundred pieces of double bubble bubble gum. You know, it had to twist them both yeah, ends, yeah. a little cartoon in them. Mm -hmm. I remember and that. And I would take, they, they cost him about a half a cent a piece. And he'd give me the box and I'd take one piece and I'd cut it into 10 pieces and I'd go and I'd go to school and I'd sell each each piece for a dime, so I got a I got a dollar for something that cost me a half a cent. So I thought that was pretty good business. I just couldn't get enough of it. And the kids would chew it all day, then take it and stick it on their bedpost or uh, at night, and the next day take it down and chew it again. So it happens I mean, in your port. Well, that was that was a luxury. But uh, when he was gone, I ran the grocery store, and. Uh, Again, it was a different age. I, I didn't know that at four you couldn't have a paper out or at seven you couldn't raise pigeons or at 10 you couldn't 
run across each other. It was, it was just common. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in my nature. And I did, I mean, I did as good a job as he did. Uh, and then uh, uh, my father invented the chocolate-covered banana. Really? Yeah. And I don't know. I think I, Disney sells those on a stick. Yeah, everybody does. And uh, they were called Lulu's at the time. And, we, and so after school, I would go to his little store he had and he would go down to the to the docks and buy big stalks of bananas and he would peel them and put them on a stick and put them in the freezer and then after school I would go take the bananas dip them in chocolate and then stick them in a little plastic thing well no one knew what they were so we would go to the Orange Bowl in Miami after when a football game was not going on and when the crowds came out, we had a little f freezer truck. We parked there, and we gave them away for free. And we give people the, and said, "Listen, if you like them, go tell your gross, your local grocer, that you they need to carry them." And, and after a few weeks, we started getting calls from grocery store. We we want some. And he ma he made a pretty good business. And at some point, we changed the name from Lulu's to Yum Yums. And uh, so we did that for a while. And then my dad got into the uh, uh, used furniture business. Well, no, first he, first he went to work for a, a food company. He was selling Vita herring, uh, uh, kosher salami, all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff like that. And uh, one... I think one Christmas after he had been there like a year, I'm in junior high school at the time. After he, like a year, he they they promised him a big bonus and they and they gave him, they stiffed him, so he quit. And he heard some guy uh, uh, was in the used furniture business in the black section of town, and and the guy was looking for a partner. And uh, so my dad, uh, so I, he took me with him to kind of meet this guy mm -hmm. before he made a decision. And the guy walks over to me and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out this big roll. I don't know, it looked like $100 bills. And he said, if you get your dad to be my partner, he'll be walking around with one of these. I mean, it could have been $100 bill wrapped around ones. but. Uh -huh. I said, Dad, you got to be a partner. And so by, I talked him into it. Well, ended up he lost his money. <laughs> oh, gee. And uh, he had a few hundred dollars left in, in a family to, to uh, uh, support. And he went to another section of Miami called Le Coconut Grove. Yep. In the black section of Coconut Grove. Uh, and uh, uh, opened up a tiny little furniture store in fact it was so small that every time he would sell like a couch we'd have to unload half the store to get it out the front door it was but uh incidentally coconut grove uh you heard of the Deering estate there was a charles phone named charles Deering that was i think he was made his money with with uh 
Alcoa, one of the big companies. Mm -hmm. And he decided to build a, uh, his mansion in Coconut Grove on the water. And, uh, but there was no Miami wind. I mean, this is back in the 20s, I guess. And there was no labor. So he brought all the labor over from the Bahamas. And it, so he, he made this little area where it was like a bedroom community called a Coconut Grove. So it was all Bahamians that started. In fact, all the streets in Coconut Grove were all Bahamian names. Really? And most of the people that lived there were from the Bahamas. And uh, they still had families back in the Bahamas. And they were brought over to build his mansion. Well, he built this, you know, like Biltmore House. Like, like Versailles, the one you're building. <laughs> yeah, was, um, yeah, I guess so. Someday. Anyway, um, so uh, today it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's owned by the county. It's a museum, uh, and it's quite famous down there. All right, to get back to, so my dad, so after school, I would, I would go help work. Whatever my dad sold during the day, uh, my brother and I would, we, we bought a little trailer. We pulled behind our, our car and we would deliver the furniture that he sold uh, on the trailer. And then on weekends, he sold everything, you know, in, in the black section, they don't have any money. And so the, they have, everything is on credit. So he would sell a couch for like, like $300. He would get $10 down, $5 a week. And my brother and I had to go out and knock on doors on Saturday so night. So it was a, like a buy here, pay here. Yeah, and, and collect the money. And I learned a valuable lesson back then that, uh, that I tell my salespeople today. It took me three, on an average of three visits to collect the $5. On a Friday night, I would go payday and I'd go uh, knock on the door. Sometimes I had to climb up four or five stories in an old, old apartment building. And I'd knock on the door. His, his store was called Grove Furniture. I say grow furniture, and they'd say, "I didn't get my paycheck yet. Come back tomorrow." And I'd say, "Okay." And tomorrow I'd go back and say, "On Saturday, grow furniture." Hey, I haven't cashed my check yet. Come back on Monday. And I'd say, "Okay." Come back on Monday. Grow furniture. Here's your five dollars. And I never. So when I when I didn't get it on the first knock or the second knock. To me, it was two down and one to go. And I tell the salespeople, when they don't make a sale, don't be discouraged. If you don't make two or three, don't be discouraged because you're going to make a certain percentage, you know, like maybe two out of ten or something. So, so if, or one out of five. So if you, if you don't make it first one, just say one down, four to go, you know. And uh, it still works today. So I, um, so leave, leaving the furniture business. Uh, so I collected, so I, I did that. So I was, then I grad, then in high school, what is, who's crying? 
Sounds like one of your animals making some noise. <laughs> we got enough of this. Welcome to the Humane Society. David's got a big collection of animals here, cats uh, and dogs. And uh, I didn't, because I worked for my dad, I didn't have time to engage in, in sports in high school. So I, I, but I wanted to do something, so I, I boxed. I, every Friday night, I went to the American Legion Hall and, and I was a boxer. I was like uh, uh, Spinks, uh, Leon Spinks. I remember him. I just remember all he did was in the minute the bell rang, he just started throwing punches. He missed half of them, but that was me. I didn't have any defense. I just my defense was my offense, and I did pretty good boxing. And uh, I look forward to that. And only three round fights, but I'm gonna tell you those three round. I was winning. I, I used to get up early in the morning and do my road work, you know, mm -hmm. you know before I went to school. But uh, uh, I graduated uh, high school, and I went to University of Miami. You've already had a full career before you graduated high school. But keep, keep going. So yeah. you went to University of Miami. I went to University of Miami. Well, actually, I was going to, you know, when you're in high school, they asked you, what you wanted to be when you grew up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I really had this dentist that I really liked. So I, so I said, I'm, I'm going to be a dentist. And my two best friends uh, were uh, going to be accountants. And we were all going to go to the University of Florida together. And um, I was uh, madly in love with this girl that I met the first day of the 10th grade in high school. And all through high school, I was just uh, mad in love with her. But I, I really, she didn't really give me a, a chance until we were seniors and then we were together 100%. Well, she runs off, broke my heart, ran off and married a jet pilot. So I thought, well, if that's what she wants, I'll be a jet pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I, I'm going to Florida to register. And at the same time the registration's going on, uh, I have to go to uh, Valdosta, Georgia, Moody Air Force Base is where they're, they're holding... Uh, uh, Tryouts. You know. So you're registering for the service. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be join the Air Force, be an officer and a gentleman, and be a jet pilot because that's what I know she she wants, I guess. Well, there were like 400 guys, and they narrow it down to 10, and I'm one of the 10. And uh, they said, and I qualified. They you either qualified as pilot or navigator, and I qualified. As pilot, and I heard one of the reasons too that were helpful is that you were taller than the others. They wanted I was tall, tall guys. I was tall, but uh, that wasn't the reason for. I mean, actually, they'd rather have you be shorter to, to fly jets, more room in the cockpit, I guess. So anyway, they said, "Hey, congratulations, you're in." Uh, just um, they pull out this book of circles with colors, and they say, "Just tell us what number you see." And I look at the circle and I said, what number? They said, you're out of here. 
You're colorblind. Said, You're colorblind. First time in my life, I didn't know I was colorblind. <laughs> I couldn't see that. I couldn't see the the number in the color. You're colorblind. Just like when you were four, I you said, didn't wait, wait to work. I said, you told me. I said, you told me I'm, I'm in. They said, well, you were until you you can't fly jets if you you know if you can't see colors. So I was very disappointed, but I so I left there. I drove down to Gainesville. I'll register and go to college. I get to Gainesville and they said, sorry, yesterday was the last day to register. You can't come to school here. Well, you, what, what this shows is that everything that happens to you during your life gets you to where you ultimately end up. Your life is like a roadmap. You keep coming to intersections and some events make you turn left, some make you turn right, some make you go straight. And your life is like this and everything that happens ultimately is responsible for where you end up. So I, I speaking of that on the way over here, Natalie and I were talking and and uh, she had interviewed at uh, uh, with Isleworth Realty and she didn't end up getting that position. She got a position with us and she said she was so happy because she's yeah. enjoying it. And I said, everything happens for a reason. May not be what you want, right. but it happens for a and, reason. And not only, and it shapes good, your life. not only good things, the bad things as well. Yeah, it's oh the, yeah, the they, things, they shape you. The bad things. So when something bad happens to you, don't, again, just like knocking on doors, don't, don't say, oh God, that's terrible. Say, wow, that, that put me in a, a direction where I'm ultimately going to end up, which is going to be good. So I go to, I go to Miami and I register at the University of Miami. My two best friends are at you know, Gainesville. Well, they end up becoming dentists. <laughs> I end up in business school. And so now, uh, when I, um, while I was, while I was uh, uh, going to the first year of the University of Miami, and school was very small, and it was really a, they called it a party school. I mean, people didn't go there. They went there to play, not to, mm -hmm. not to be. And, I, and when I graduated high school, my father said, what school do you want to go to, and what kind of car do you want to drive? And stupid me said, I'll buy my own car and I'll, and I'll pay my own way through college. I mean, my dad at that point could have afforded to do it. I was independent. I didn't want anyone to help me. So I'm paying my way through college. So how do I make money? So I started a water ski school. And my two friends, um, when they came home in the summers, we would go, go to the hotels in Miami Beach I, we bought a, I bought a, a small uh, boat, uh, I think it was like an 18-foot boat with a five-horse Evan Ruth motor. Uh -huh. And we would go, go to the beach and go to the little clubs on the Miami Beach and pick up three girls. We, we could not romance them until we had them signed up. And we would charge them $15 each. We'd take them out all day to go water skiing. We will, you know where Star Island is? Yep, sure right do. off of Star Island. There's a monument island. Yeah, it's a, a monument to I think World War II or one. I don't know. 
and uh, off that beach is where we all summer we would we would teach the girls how to water ski. Not a bad that, job. Out of that little, with a five horsepower engine, can you imagine? We could pull two people, and if somebody took a running start, we could pull three people. <laughs> Amazing, and so we made money to pay our tuition, uh, and. And then my, but my first year of college, uh, my professor, one, my history professor one day said, and he used to, there were no books. He would, he would, had it written down and he would, at the beginning of the class, he would start talking in a monotone and he, he had trouble staying awake. Then all of a sudden he was going along and he said, and the next time you go to Alaska, and then he started talking about he was an exchange teacher in Alaska at the University of Fairbanks. And one of his students, back then, Alaska, I don't know, it wasn't a state yet, I don't believe. And, and, and uh, uh, people could go there and homestead land. The government, if you'd, they'd give you 10 acres if you would build a cabin on it and live on it. And so he said his student, uh, I don't know who's crying. That sounds like one of the animals. <laughs> so uh, uh, the student uh, got ten acres, built a cabin on it, and after four years, uh, when he graduated from University of Fairbanks, he was able to sell the property for enough to pay for his tuition. I sound like a good idea to me. I'm going to go to Alaska. <laughs> so, but I need a job. So I'll. I'll uh, go to uh, electronic school, learn communications. And so I jo I, I'm still going to university, but I also uh, started going to electronic school. And uh, as soon as I announced to family and friends that I was going to, uh, to electronic school, Everyone we knew started bringing me toasters, irons. <laughs> Fix my TV. stuff. This was the birth of TV. You know, TV hadn't been out about five or six years. You're like our friend Justin from You Break, I Fix. You know, and, and TVs were like 13 inches with a magnifying glass in the front of them and big, heavy sets, big, heavy furniture. And so I learned how to fix TVs and also irons and toasters and record players and you name anything you could plug in. And uh, I, I was very good at it. I, had a, I, I was good at using my hands. And I was filling up my car every day with the, uh, all the stuff that people were bringing me to fix. And I'd charge them a dollar, two dollars, but I didn't wasn't trying to make money off them. I'd charge them a couple of dollars more than what it cost me. And one day, every day I, I took a carload of stuff there and my, and my instructor would fix it with me. Uh -huh. And one day- Your flight instructor? Or no, your instructor? No, my, my your instructor, electronics instructor. Your electronics instructor, okay. And, and uh, now I'm still taking flying lessons uh, as well. And then one day the owner of the school came to me and he said, look, you're running a business out of my school, which I was. And you either run a business or you go to school, but you're not going to do both. So I quit school and I found a 
a little store uh, in Coconut Grove, a block from where my dad had his furniture store. It had been a cleaner's where they took in cleaning. They didn't do the work there. Mm-hmm. They just like an a agency. And I figured I'll keep taking in cleaning. And I'll also build a bench where I could do all the repairs. And cleaning will pay the rent. Well, within a few, I never took in the first piece of cleaning because within a few days, my store was loaded with stuff to fix. And I built a bench and I hired my instructor from the school <laughs> to work for me because I didn't, I wasn't that smart. And uh, I have a business. So is that your first employee? That was my first employee. That's true. I don't even remember his name. That would be my first employee. And within a couple months. And just to stop you from that, that was your first employee. How old were you? I was 18. And today, how many employees do you think you have? 15,000. Before, before COVA, I probably have 10,000 now. And are you about to become a sheriff? Now? No, back, you know, back then, 18, you were doing electronics. <laughs> no, no, you said, no. So how much longer till you become the sheriff? Oh, a couple of years, yeah. So anyway, within a couple of months, I, uh, if you want me to speed it up. I no, 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 no. Within, within a couple of months, I, um, the space was too small. So I, I went across the street and there was a store 10 times bigger. And I rented it. And uh, so now I'm, f- I'm fixing TVs. I hired people. And the best people to hire to fix TVs back then were Cubans. Because in Cuba, it was hard getting parts. So they would have to almost manufacture their parts. Or Like if you had a bad tuner. Mm-hmm. You know, back then you had a tuner. You, you didn't have a remote control. You had a tuner you had to turn from 2 to 13. Right. And uh, if the tuner went bad, an American would buy a new tuner and put it in. A Cuban would take the tuner apart and fix it. So I always hired Cuban repairmen. So now I'm, I'm going to school. I'm taking flying lessons. Oh, oh no, I, when I went into business, I, I decided not to go to Alaska. So I'm going, I'm going to university, and I'm, and I'm also got a business fixing TVs. So when I went to my business classes, I was teaching my classes at school because the pro- professor said, Mr. Siegel, will you come up here and tell us how you hire people, how do you advertise, how you do this, how you do that? Because I knew more than my professors about business. I'm in business. And um, so... Also, something I didn't tell you, when I was 18 years old, I was a split image of Rock Hudson. People would stop me on the street and say, are you related to Rock Hudson? You look just like Rock Hudson. Well, one day, I was, I was uh, by this time I was 19, and I was, I was the weightlifting champion of Florida. Of Florida? I was, I was a stud. Well, I was just 19. I, I, won, I entered a statewide contest and came first place in, in weightlifting. And, uh, and I, I was stud and 
I looked like Rock Hudson. And one day somebody came to me and I had my business. And they said, um, you look just like Rock Hudson. You should be a movie star. And it just clicked. I said, I'm going to be a movie star. So I loaded up my car at a 49 Mercury convertible. And I loaded up every possession I owned in the world. And I drove across country to be a movie star. Right, we're going to pause here so we can go to a phase two, because I told you we wouldn't get this in one part. So in a moment, we're going to hear how David tries to become a movie star. Mm-hmm. 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 